Hi, listeners. You're tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Joining us in this episode is Julia Carlson. Before we begin our interview, I have a long list of Julia's credentials and accomplishments that I have to share right off the top. Julia is from Provo, Utah, and enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1994. She was trained as a heavy equipment mechanic and served with 7th Engineer Support Battalion, Camp Pendleton, California, and later as Maintenance Chief for 8th Communication Battalion, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, in 2001. Julia deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan as a staff NCO with Civil Affairs Group CAG units. She was instrumental in the economic development, education, and engagement of Iraqi women during her deployment to Iraq with 3rd CAG in 2006. She then served as Civil Affairs Team Chief and as the officer in charge of the female engagement team under 2nd Marine Expeditionary Brigade while in Helmand, Afghanistan in 2009 to 2010. Julia served as an instructor and competitor of the Marine Corps shooting team in Kiwanaka, Virginia in both active and reserve capacities. She was the first female to graduate the Small Arms Weapons Instructor School. Her marksmanship and Marine Corps highlights include over 15 inter-service awards, five international awards of which Two were combat precision against all militaries in the world, over 40 national titles and awards to include four history-making championships by being the first woman to ever win since the induction of the competition in 1902. She was named the Female Athlete of the Year for the Marine Corps in 1998 and has held three National Service rifle records. She earned her Distinguished Rifleman Badge in 1997 and her Distinguished Pistol Shot 2014, and is one of four known female Marines to become double distinguished. During her time as a member of the Marine Corps shooting teams, both active and reserve, she has taught marksmanship skills to active and reserves around the country, youth, civilian groups, law enforcement, and other branches of the military as well. She retired from the U.S. Marines as a Master Sergeant in 2016 with 22 years of service. Julia has her BA in Hospitality Business Management from Utah Valley University. She co-founded and operates Doc and Gunnies, an organization to support veterans and first responders with healing through the arts, and also serves as a mentor for the Veterans Treatment Court, a fourth district court in her hometown. She's married to Dan Carlson, and combined, they have six sons, three daughters, and one granddaughter. Julia, thanks for speaking with me today. You're welcome. Good to be here. So before we begin the interview, I have to acknowledge why we are both calling in during this recording. Today's date is Sunday, March 29th, 2020, and we are in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak here in New York City. Recently, Governor Cuomo signed the New York State on pause executive order, which is a 10-point policy to assure uniform safety for everyone. So we're grateful that Gotham Podcast Studio, the studio where we've been recording this show since its inception, is providing virtual recordings so we can continue this show. And really, I need to take a moment and recognize all of the people working on the front lines of this pandemic right now. Oh, I fully agree. I, I uh, So many people are doing wonderful things out there. I hope that they stay safe and keep going. I couldn't be prouder to be from New York at this moment and to be working with the FDNY. So It's a surreal experience, but I'm really um, grateful for the people who are doing all the hard work and stepping up. It's exciting to see the character 
of people in, in crises like these. Which brings me to my first question about you, which is what was the impetus for you to join the Marines? Well, even as a, a child, I, I remember studying history and war in school, and I always felt this underlying need to be a part of that service. And it wasn't until I started shooting competitively where I was surrounded and had the opportunity to be around the other military teams where I decided I wanted to join the Marine Corps. And then when did you discover that you enjoyed marksmanship? I assume it was in the Marines. Actually, it was before. It's actually quite a funny story. It was largely to impress a boy. I was 16 years old at the time, (laughs) and he was one of the best shooters in in the state of Utah. And I, you know, my 16-year-old mind thought that if I shot well, that he would like me. (laughs) So I, you know where this is going. So I went to a competition and I borrowed a rifle and I ended up winning the match. And I walked up to him because I thought, okay, I'm going to, he'll talk to me now that I am a good shooter. And he just walked away. He didn't talk to me, but that feeling that I got, because this was the first time I'd won anything. But that Mm -hmm. feeling that I got of winning that it actually meant something. It kind of just rose up inside of me because I didn't realize how I I didn't have that feeling before. Mm -hmm. And so that's what started the competition when I was 16. And that was with air rifle and small bore. And then I had the opportunity to shoot high power, which is the M14. It's a 7.62. These are all iron sights. And that's when I started shooting at the nationals in Mm -hmm. Camp Perry, Ohio. The, for the next three years or three seasons. And that's where I got um, introduced to the military shooting team. You know, before we keep going, I, I've heard anecdotally that women commonly outshoot men. Is there any merit to that? And if so, why? Well, I think that they're initially, so when you're initially starting out, I think we're all equal because mm-hmm. shooting is a, is a, is not so much a physical sport where basketball and football, you've got to have height or speed or girth and uh, strength to be able to compare between men and women. But mm-hmm. I think in my years of training others, I've seen a difference in the ability for women to be a little bit calmer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they listen. So if I have adjustments that need to be made or I have to teach them or, or change them, so they don't have bad habits to have to have them recover from. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think that women are naturally start out better because they don't have the bad habits and they are more patient and, and they listen more to mm-hmm. the correct instruction. Interesting. Going back to, you mentioned competition, and I want to unpack some of that a little bit more. Um, when we think about optimizing human performance in a marksmanship competition, or combat setting, I feel like it's easy to focus on the technical aspects of the weapon or the physical aspects like posture or stance. But I really want to pick your brain about the mental aspect, which you were just alluding to, and get inside the mind of one of the Marines' best shooters. So how important is the mental aspect to top marksmen generally, and how important has it been to you? I want to clarify, um, as far as being one of the Marines' best shooters, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of good shooters out there. 
um, in, in the Marines. And I just happened to be given the opportunity to have more time, have more rounds, have make more mistakes so that I could become better. But going back to mental performance, it's huge. For me, it's probably one of the most important parts of the competition. Initially, it wasn't something that I considered, but as I began mastering the technical fundamentals, you know, position and, and how to move my site, those types of things, I realized that if I really wanted to become a champion, that I needed to prepare my mind for the different possibilities and circumstances that I would encounter. And I noticed that as I prepared my mind, when people would ask me, well, how did you shoot? You know, what do you think about when you shoot? I would actually have to sit down and think, well, what, what do I think about? And it was answering those questions that I came out with a mental training program for myself on what it was that I was actually doing. And as I did that, I found that there were real applications of what I was applying to my mental strategy on the range that I would actually, it, it would leak out into life and it would apply to my life as well and made outside off the range circumstances mm -hmm. better as well. That's great. And let's talk about your personal approach to training and conditioning the mental aspect. What are the practices, techniques, or concepts that you've embraced? Sure. I thought about the top, the top two. There's a lot of little things, but if I could categorize them into just a couple, I think that one of the most important things for me is letting go of the things that you can't control. Mm -hmm. So I have this, one of the quotes that I like, if you focus on the things that you can't control, then the things that you can control don't get taken care of. So when it comes to aligning your sight, your, for iron sight, your, your eye can only focus on one thing at a time. And if you are looking at different things, then your sights aren't going to be aligned. And then the other thing is true confidence. It's mm -hmm. allowing yourself to be comfortable with actually being a winner, with being successful. Some people aren't comfortable with that. And I have an example that I've watched over the years. So in this standing position, we usually shoot standing or offhand. It's the least stable position. It's from 200 yards. And it's really wobbly. You're holding the rifle up. And there, there isn't as many points of contact and wind can kind of maybe push you along, but you're constantly moving. And I noticed that a lot of shooters, let's say if it's a 10 shot string towards the end of their string, if they're shooting really well, let's say they're shooting 10 and X and 10, they're not dropping any points, right? That towards the end of their string, they get more nervous because they're, they're shooting perfect at this point. Why would you become more nervous if you're doing well? Mm-hmm. For the fear of being successful. I, I've talked to some shooters about why it is that they get towards the end of their string and their, their nervousness just peaks. But then, let's say they have a nine, they drop a point, and then they kind of relax. Okay, I'm back to where I normally am. I'm okay now. Why would we not feel confident enough to keep shooting that center shot? We have to be totally confident and be okay be successful that that next shot is just as important as the first one and that we're okay with shooting a center shot does that make sense absolutely and i think that's transferable to so many different scenarios and you know 
I, I think that we talk about this kind of often on the podcast about being in the moment and how important it is to just stay in the moment and not get too far ahead or fall too far, far behind. So that speaks volumes, I think. Right. And I, I think it's obvious that, you know, it's important to control your breath and your heart rate. So what happens to your shooting performance when you're unable to manage your arousal and emotion? That's a really good question. So I, I found that my performance will go down because uh, like if I get angry, anger, Patty, anger moves you, it always moves you away from your goal. So if you're letting anger and frustration take precedence in your mind, because that shot's gone, it's downrange. You cannot call that bullet back. The only thing you can do is assess what you did. And sometimes it's got to be a quick assessment if it's rapid fire and you've got another shot and you've got 70 seconds, you've got 10 shots, you've got to get out in 70 seconds. You don't have time to get angry. You've got to focus on that next shot that's in the chamber. So I found that performance goes down because when you get angry, your problem solving, it's hindered when you let your emotions get the best of you to be able to quickly assess what you need to do. So there's bad shots that you're going to take throughout your life. Um, missed shots, sometimes you shoot on the wrong target. Some of these mistakes are within your control and you can retrospective, you know, have a little bit of guilt and say, okay, I'm going to use this as positive shame and, and, <laughs> and fix it for the next one. But it, sometimes it's, it's things that you can't control, like the weather or the person next to you is having a bad day and, and you can't let it affect your performance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes anger, if it's bad enough, it could um, lead to rage and contempt and despair. And I think when we're talking about a team environment, because even on, so we have individual days and we have team days, you know, the different types of performances require different energies. And I noticed that when we're talking about a team environment, any emotions that I would carry, if, if I was having a bad personal day on the range, I, it would transition to my teammates and it would open doors for them to retain their negativity and thus affecting their performance as well. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes when we're talking about individual performance, it's a portion of the whole team as well. So when performance is not to satisfaction, the key thing for me is letting go of the anger and and using the learning experience to strategize for the next shot. There's so much wisdom in what you just shared. So I really appreciate that. I want to talk a little bit more about failure. So the leadership under fire team works to identify best practices that help high performers to absorb failure and mediocre performance is there a process that you would embrace following a competition where your performance was not to your satisfaction? Yes, that's a constant thing with, um, I think, most high-level competitors, they are constantly doing self-assessments. On the range, they're minute ones because there's not time to sit and focus on, on too much. During the day, I would jot down notes on my zeros, on the wind conditions, the weather conditions, some of the thoughts that I may have had if they were short. And then um, afterwards, I always felt it was important to capture what I've learned in a group setting that day before we let too much time pass on. Um, We would reflect as a team and some of my experiences and the things that I learned that day would help out somebody with 
how to fix their problems the next day because they may run into this, the same situation. But at the very end of the day, I would go back to my room and I would sit and I would bring out my data book and I would journal and I would write down my thoughts and my feelings and what I could do better. And I would try and be as positive as possible. It didn't, you know, make any sense for me to write, you know, you suck, you know, you had a (laughs) terrible day, but to be really positive and what were the most constructive things I could teach myself so that I could remember and refer back to that. And I think that's important. And that was one of the things I felt was very helpful to me. I might steal that. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Listeners, I'd like to take a moment to share that the ebook, Fire Psych, Mental Toughness and the Valor Mindset on the Fireground, is now available for purchase on the Leadership Under Fire website. Click shop in the menu in the top right corner of the page and secure your copy for just $15. For those who don't know, FirePsych introduces and advances mental performance concepts and skills using the Valor Mindset Framework. The central objective of FirePsych is to provide fire officers and firefighters with an improved understanding of human performance under operational stress while introducing concepts and skills that enhance physiological function, self and situational awareness, and tactical resilience. When originally published in 2014, It joined a lengthy list of books that sought to enhance fireground performance and safety. However, it was the first book to exclusively examine the mental aspects of fireground performance. Dr. Mike Askin and Eric Nuremberg wrote the book in Leadership Under Fire's formative years, and the book has served as a primer for human performance optimization efforts in the FDNY, the Milwaukee Fire Department, and several other fire rescue departments. Julia, in addition to your service as a heavy equipment mechanic and a marksmanship competition and instructor, you've also served tours abroad in both Iraq and Afghanistan, where you frequently attach to combat units as a female engagement team leader. What exactly is female engagement in a strategic context, but also on a tactical level? Well, female engagement is the physical act of engaging with working with the the local female population in countries where our military is operating. Female engagement isn't just, you know, me talking to women. It's males or females engaging with the local, the female population. But in current areas such as Iraq and Afghanistan, this is mainly done by our service women. And female engagement also on the flip side means that me as a female, I'm being used to engage with the men. It's looking at how genders interact and how they respond to better outfits, the information and the implementation of plans and programs and strategies on the ground so we can fully understand the the situation in which we're operating within. Sometimes it would address for strategically to better understand the communities and then understanding the, the smaller problems and concerns in a community that could be expressed differently from the male perspective towards women and from the female perspective towards women because they're both going to respond differently on depending on who what type of gender is asking them it greatly helped the ground commanders in those areas with decision making helping resolve conflicts and stabilizing their areas in many regards 
That's excellent. I was going to ask, you know, how does female engagement help us win or promote the safety or force protection of our American troops? I've got two perspectives on that. I think first one I'll talk about is um, promoting physical safety by using the female troops and and Marines to engage with the local population. Um, Because we were engaging with them, we were out and among them and we we had the opportunity to physically search them and make sure that they weren't actually men dressed as women in in the burqas and whether they were carrying weapons or smuggling other types of things. And that, you know, helped with our immediate safety and it also pacified the local men, having women being able to search their women because the local men would, would, they would be an uproar if their women were touched. And then locally, as far as on this smaller footprint, I noticed that having female troops out in the community just that presence alone, some of the children and the women and the men in many areas, they seem to see us as a benevolent presence. It was, uh, it pacified them and it kind of reduced tension in a lot of the operations that we were doing. I even had some kids that would, they would kind of peek their head out the door and I would say something to them in their language and they would run back in and tell their moms. Mm-hmm. And it just, it created a, a new a spirit, a new feeling among certain areas. And I think that as far as physical safety helped as well. But on a global perspective, when it comes to why, as far as security and strategic concept, is if you look a global perspective, the security of women and states or the security of government is directly related to the stability and physical security of, of women whether they have physical security, access to education, access to healthcare, whether they can vote. There's all these metrics that have been studied. And the women that have low marks on stability and their security of of participation in the community, their governments are the most volatile. Their, Their governments and their states have the highest risks of war. So understanding from a global perspective our ability to do our part to help men and women work together in these areas I think is huge. Yeah thank you for that insight. I certainly see the value in the program for several different reasons but get the impression that you and your Marines didn't have any previous experience in such an endeavor so I'm curious Were there any leaders or thought leaders who helped you to tailor and deliver programs focused to the female population? Sure. Yeah, that is correct. We didn't have a lot of experience. And we were talking 2006 when I first went over. So this this has been going on for quite a while when, you know, there was always somebody out there, but there wasn't any overarching programs or training or perceptions of what we should implement. But as we went forward, there were a lot of people from different branches and units and even non-government organizations and things like that that helped to implement uh, and strategize for the best use of women on the battlefield and for best practices when implementing these local plans and programs, whether it's like how to talk to the women or how to work with the men or what types of programs would work within the cultural umbrella for each particular area Mm -hmm. um, so that they could be sustainable. And I noticed that the most sustainable programs needed buy-in from the local male population on the ground. 
But there were quite a few women that I brought in initially, Major Megan McClung, a Captain Karen Anderson, and the civil affairs leaders that I had worked with over the years to bring things together. I mentioned Megan McClung because she was killed in Iraq in 2006. And she was one of the key people that I had brought in to help strategize how to start the Iraqi women's engagement mm-hmm. program. Speaking about leadership in that environment, you know, you've been a pioneer in the Marines in several facets. You entered the Marines as a heavy equipment mechanic more than 25 years ago. You established yourself as one of the best shooters in the USMC, and you're a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan, where you served on the front lines in both countries during considerably violent periods. I have to ask, what was the biggest challenge or challenges that you navigated as a leader in the Marines? In Iraq and Afghanistan, I believe that the biggest challenge there was there was just so much to be done and not enough time or resources to do it. Mm-hmm. Prioritizing and being strategically minded proved to be extremely important. The challenge was making sure you were balanced in doing that, listening and working with great minds to accomplish those difficult tasks was very key. That's advice that I think we can take right now here in New York City. Switching gears, though, Jason Bresler comically relayed to me a story of an instance where a young infantryman in Afghanistan was quite skeptical of you being on a forward patrol base with infantry Marines. And Jason overheard the young Marine voicing his skepticism to another infantryman. And then Captain Bresler said he challenged the young Marine and told him that he would be willing to bet his next paycheck that you could outshoot any Marine in the entire unit. And after learning about your pedigree, the Marine wisely chose not to take Jason up on the wager. So that said, (laughs) what was it like to be in an austere and violent village in southern Afghanistan and living amongst an all-male unit on a very Spartan base? Well, I I think my, my age and my rank at the time provided me with a different experience than some of the the younger and junior ranking female Marines that had come out later. I didn't see that, that face to face where someone said you shouldn't be here. I didn't experience that. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt inclusion. I didn't have any inclusion problems with the unit. They were very mm-hmm. professional and I felt like I knew it might be awkward for some of the Marines to not have trained or worked with a female Marine. And so I did my best to just be professional and mm-hmm. respect others and, and get to know the younger Marine and just talking to them, make him feel comfortable with who I am and what I was doing there. Um, so it wasn't this elephant in the room that nobody's talking about. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to make it easier. I believe you worked alongside Lindsay Adario while in Nowzad, Afghanistan or more accurately, Lindsay embedded with your team and was able to gain access to the female population because of the relationships that your team forged with the Afghan women and men. Lindsay was our first guest performance leader on this podcast. Is there anything in particular that you gleaned from Lindsay's extensive experience? Yes, I did work with Lindsay. She was delightful. She was (laughs) calm and her presence of mind were unparalleled. She had a knack for working with all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And I, she had this energy. And the way she had this energy to capture the story, I've rarely seen in, in people. 
or in photojournalists. It was a real treat to have her alongside uh, me when I was in Afghanistan. But I, the thing that I gained from her was how she would interact with people. Mm-hmm. And I loved watching that. And, and that was something that she taught me. Yeah, I met her, obviously, speaking with her on this podcast and met her before. She's definitely like a citizen of the world, I feel like. So she's a very extraordinary person. We're nearly a decade removed from your combat tour in Afghanistan, where you literally lived amongst the local population in one of the world's most impoverished, desolate, and war-torn places. As you reflect on your time in Afghanistan, what are some of your greatest takeaways about the human condition? If or when your kids ask you about Afghanistan, what do you tell them? Well, you know, life in general, it just has its ups and downs. And I feel like the one thing that I try to, you know, my greatest takeaways are how truly blessed we are to live in this country mm-hmm. that, and that even your worst day is better than no day at all. As some of our men and women who have served did not come home. The other takeaway is that there is always someone to help. There's someone to serve. There's someone to lift higher. And in doing so, you lift up yourself. And lastly on that, it's okay to weep for those in tragedy. It's healing to pray for your enemies, hearts to soften, and to forgive yourself for what you didn't get to finish or fix. Again, so appreciated right now, given our current state of things. So those are really, um, really great points. I'm fascinated to know about the challenges that come with deploying to a combat zone with U.S. Marines and then returning to life as a mom in Utah. Can you share what that experience was like? I sure can. It was very (laughs) difficult (laughs) because you both your kids are growing and you're growing and learning in completely separate spheres. Because you might as well be worlds apart when when you're in these locations. Because both of you change, jumping back in and being a mom had some pretty hard days and pretty hard transitions and challenges. But I think about that control mindset that I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. uh, about my mental management. Because focusing on the things I couldn't control meant that I wasn't focused on what I could control, which is the moment with my kids. So they just needed lots of hugs. (laughs) They needed more of my time. Mm -hmm. And I just tried to make that time to be with them and use it valuably. Mm -hmm. So uh, not waste it on things that are of little worth and Mm -hmm. making lasting and real memories. And those don't have to be expensive. You could just play games and laugh and spend time. Yeah, it's the little things. Yeah. (laughs) So... I want to talk about some of your work that you've done with an organization called Docking Gunnies, which you're a co-founder of. And this organization supports veterans and first responders with healing through the arts. Can you tell me more about that? I sure can. It's been what I've been working on the last few years. So uh, Patty, serving others has always been something that I felt compelled to do. It's just a part of me. And in an effort to find ways to serve after I retired from the Marines in 2016, I found that I was really struggling with my own needs to heal from my own struggles and invisible wounds of war. And I hate to say it, but military sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was recovering from a lot of things, I ran across 
the quote or saying, I don't remember where I saw or heard it, but it said, the opposite of war is art. I'm going to say that again. The opposite of war is art. So I decided that I wanted to capture the stories of healing through art and then share those stories of not just the art, but of people's healing with others. So I put Doc and Gunny together and I call it Doc because my sister who also suffers, she was in the Iraq war. She's on the push to Baghdad. She was a combat medic and experienced some pretty tough stuff. And my husband was also a combat medic. And then I call it Gunny's because that's your, you know, your leader who you go to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I put together these art shows and the exhibits to share the stories and the art so that it can motivate others and inspire others to be creative through any type of struggle or war that they're personally dealing with. So that's what Doc and Gunny does. Yeah, I didn't realize there was such meaning behind the name of the organization. So that's great. And that quote is so powerful. I'm definitely going to share that with people. So we're at the point of our interview when, you know, we've talked a lot about a lot of complex, complicated, serious things. But I want to segue into our little rapid fire Q&A session. So uh, these questions are short and sweet, and I'm looking for short and sweet responses as well. So what is your favorite artistic medium? Is it painting, music, writing? What's your favorite? I love music because it just soothes the soul. And you don't have to. You can just listen. And you can listen to it while you're doing other things. So music. Excellent. What is your favorite book? I am not much of a reader. I mean, I, I read, but mm-hmm. the, my favorite ones that my, I always go back to, along with the Holy Bible, is the Book of Mormon. It's another testament of Jesus Christ. It, it's also a healing for me. Excellent. Who is your favorite leader from any point in history? My favorite leader was Gunner Sergeant Kevin Kessler, who has passed away. He had mentored me as a young Maureen, and his teachings and examples to this day are a part of my everyday life. Great. What hobbies or interests do you have outside of what we talked about so far that you can share with our audience? Another thing that I do is to help the veterans through the 4th District Veterans Treatment Court. I'm a mentor coordinator there. Veterans Treatment Court is a way to help out veterans who experience some problems. And we get them the physical, mental help that they need. And we get them clean. And as soon as they get clean and finish the program, they have the opportunity to potentially have their record wiped clean and get back into society without those problems. Wow. Excellent. And last but not least, you mentioned a few on this episode, but what is your favorite quote? Other than the ones I've already shared, I came Mm -hmm. up with another one that's kind of been my guiding force through my life. And it is no amount of success can compensate for failure in the home. So it doesn't matter how many trophies I can put on the wall, how much money I have in the bank or titles that I've received. If I fail as a wife and as a mother, those things don't mean anything. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Is there anything that you wanted to go over or that we missed? There's one thing I like to teach for mental management, I teach these youth courses where it focuses on goals and planning. We usually use visual images. It's about side alignment. 
you know, when it comes to decision making and goals, if you're making poor decisions and you're up close to the target, you still hit the target. If your sights are a little bit off, it doesn't, you know, your your decisions, you know, the the misalignment doesn't matter as much. Mm-hmm. But over time, over time, I'm going to compare time to distance. Over time, if you're taking that same error in judgment over time and you go back to a thousand yards, you're going to miss the target. So I, I like to relay that making good decisions, even if they don't matter as much, you know, in keeping your integrity mm-hmm. up front at the small decisions makes the bigger ones that are further off in the distance that you can't even see, you know, five and 10 years down the road, it keeps those ones on target by making good decisions now and perfect sight alignment. Now, as I increase my distance from the target, my shots will still be in the summer. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I so appreciate everything that you've shared and thank you so much for your service. You're welcome, Patty. Stay center and don't be angry. Just smile. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks. My prayers with everyone that's there in New York. Thank you for tuning into the episode. I'm excited to share with you that the Leadership Under Fire Book Club is back by popular demand. A careful examination of history's most accomplished leaders reveals that their success was strongly correlated to a scholarly appreciation for literature, reading, and reflection. Upon its formal inception in 2012, the Leadership Under Fire team launched a recommended reading list. In subsequent years, many leaders in the LUF network have been inspired to form book clubs in their organizations, units, and teams. We're hopeful that this practice continues and thought it appropriate to canvas our LUF advisors for a few of their personal recommended reads. You can view this by visiting leadershipunderfire.com and clicking on Book Club in the menu. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.